Well, before we look again at Psalm 7, let's just take a moment now to pray again and ask for God's help. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this psalm which we have in front of us. Thank you for every word that you give to us. And we pray now that by your same spirit that inspired David those years ago, you would so help us to understand. You would speak, help us in our hearts to respond, to hear your voice, and so worship you. Give us ears to hear, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles in front of you, please do make your way to Psalm number 7. I should say it is really good to be here with you again this evening. We pray for you regularly around the corner at Logie's and really appreciate the partnership that we have together in the gospel. Now one thing that we have around at Logie's that you don't have here is something called the Church of Scotland Guild. And that is a group which from time to time organise things like coffee mornings at which you can pick up all kinds of baked goods amongst others. And at the last guild meeting coffee morning we had round at Logie's, I picked up a book from the bookstore, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It cost me, I think, 10 pence, and probably the best 10 pence I've ever spent in my life. It's a book I've bought a number of times over the years. Uh, in fact, a book that played a significant part in my own conversion. I just want to begin by reading to you the opening paragraph from mere Christianity. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis. He says, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How do you like it? if anyone did the same to you. That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the one who makes them is not merely saying that the other person's behavior does not happen to please them, but rather they are appealing to some kind of standard behavior which they expect the other person to know about. And from there, he goes on to make the case that within us, we are all aware of this standard of behavior and that we are also aware that we don't always live up to it. That is a very relevant question as we come to read something like Psalm 7, which is really an appeal for justice. We might ask, where does our sense of fair play come from? Where does our sense of justice come from? Well, ultimately, it is from God. And it is also... Therefore, to God, now we can go to plead our case. Even at those times when earthly justice seems to be 
albeit absent. David's problems here are pretty serious. They go a long way beyond just losing his seat or a piece of orange. David is being pursued. He's on the wrong end of all kinds of different false accusations. So he's being hounded down and hunted. And in fact, he describes them as is it ready to tear him apart like a lion. Not a very nice image, is it? Um, so who is there that would understand what he's going through? Who is there that really knows the truth of the matter? And who is there that we can go to when we feel the grating of injustice? You can probably see where I'm going with this. It is, of course, to God. And that is what we see in this psalm. So if you have it there in front of you, I think we are is it page 545 if you're using one of these church Bibles. Um, and at the top of the psalm there in the title, you may have noticed that this is called a Shigayon of David. And the footnote at the bottom of the page there helpfully informs us that a Shigayon is probably a literary or musical term, which means they don't really know what it means. Uh, They don't have a clue. But it is perhaps to us a helpful reminder that this is a song to be sung. The Psalms often have instructions for the director of music or the kind of musical instruments that are to accompany them. These kind of Psalms, well, the subject may be about pain and suffering, but they are songs to be sung. Here it tells us this is a song that David sang concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Not told anything else more about Cush, but presumably it's him that's behind all these false accusations. So this prayer of David's is an appeal for justice. And as he prays, he's laying out his case before God. Now, the first thing to notice from this psalm, as we read, is that God really does know our hearts. He really does know our hearts. That might not be anything particularly new to you, um, but there is absolutely no way that David or us could ever pray in this kind of way if it weren't the case that God knew our hearts, every one of us, intimately, inside and out, every detail, every motive. God knows those things. God knows, and because he knows, that transforms the way we can pray to him. You see, this psalm is an appeal for justice, but it's not an appeal to any earthly court. Uh, This is an appeal for justice to God, who already knows exactly what's going on, doesn't need anybody to explain things to him. And in fact, at the end of uh, verse 9, you see David describes God as the righteous God who probes 
minds and hearts. So it's an appeal to justice, but it's an appeal to the one from whom absolutely nothing is hidden and before whom everything is laid bare. So do you see how David prays? Verse 3. He says, Lord my God, if I have done this, and there is guilt on my hands, uh, presumably the this is whatever Cush the Benjamite is accusing him of, of which he says, if I have repaid my ally with evil, without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. He's saying, Lord, you know what's going on. You know what's going on. My enemies may be saying one thing and telling one story, but you know the truth of the matter. Um, Even if nobody else does. And he says, if I'm guilty of the charge, well, well, then Lord, you would know. Uh, It's not as though anything is hidden from you. If I'm guilty, then I deserve my punishment. But Lord, you know what's really going on. Um, And so it's an appeal for vindication. That's what he says in verse 8. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. So not that David's perfect. He's not. Certainly isn't. He knew that only too well. You don't need to read too far in any of the other Psalms to see that. But in this case, in this case where he's being hunted down and hounded, where these false accusations are being thrown around, In this particular case, he's innocent. I suppose much like we might talk of an innocent bystander or an innocent victim. Uh, Not that they are sinless and perfect, but in that particular case, they're not deserving of what's come their way. And here, as David is on the end of these unfounded accusations, he's being punished for something he's innocent of. And so that kind of prayer would make absolutely no sense at all if God didn't already know that. If he didn't search minds and hearts. If you're a Christian who prays regularly, it's the kind of thing I'm sure we can get used to and take for granted. But if it was about trying to persuade God one way or the other, or trying to bring God up to speed and fill him in on the details... And you could never pray so honestly and openly. Um, Hebrews 4 tells us this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Sobering words, aren't they? To remember that everything is laid bare before God. 
And we wouldn't want everything to be laid bare before other people, but it's the truth. God, it, God sees everything. He's not fooled by any outward appearances, even those good things that we do, but actually not with such good motives. God knows those things. He's not tricked by any smooth words, any spiritual language, and so that is also true when we come to prayer. There's no point in pretending with God. But the fact that God sees into our hearts, that also liberates us to pray. Um, You see how it liberates David and the great comfort that comes in knowing that God is the one who really understands. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows exactly what you are going through right now and what it feels like what your fears are, what your hopes are, what your worries are. He knows all those things. He knows what you're up against. Truly knows the reality of every situation. And we can rest in that as we pray. Even if nobody else knows, you could never even explain properly to anybody to get them to understand. God knows. God sees, and so David lays his case out before him. That is what is happening at the beginning of the psalm. But notice next, as we read on, it's not just that God sees our hearts and understands, but he also cares deeply about injustice and doesn't turn a blind eye to it. God is a righteous judge. That's what David says in verse 11. If you look down to it. God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day. I don't know how those words sit with you. Perhaps not the most comfortable lines to read. But you see, again, if God were indifferent to wickedness, then there would be no point in praying to him in this way. Rightly, it could be of great comfort to know that God understands what we are going through. And there is great comfort to be drawn from that. But if he wasn't also a righteous judge well, there wouldn't be much use in appealing to him for justice, would there? Um, Think again of what I read from C.S. Lewis at the beginning. um, How there's something in us that just cries foul when we feel that we've been wronged. And you say, it's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. Well, that is in us because we are made in God's image. And God is a God of justice who cares about what is wrong. That's where it comes from. And when Paul stood up on Mars Hill in Athens, he said to them, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
God is the righteous judge before whom one day we will all stand. Jesus will return, and that day is coming when God will finally judge this world and put everything right. That is the certainty upon which this is based. And so David's appeal for justice here, well, he's asking for a bit of that justice to be shown now. God is a righteous judge. That is without doubt coming in the future. And David's prayer is really asking for a piece of that justice to be seen now in his present situation. It's not about personal revenge of any sort. It's not vindictive. This is leaving room for God's own judgment. But that's where David's hope comes from. That's where his hope comes from. It's it's the certainty that God does care about all these things that are wrong in the world. He does really care. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He will bring all things to account. And that certainty brings proper hope. You can hear that as you read through the psalm. This is no academic treaty on the theology of justice. Um, This is a heartfelt plea. Verse 6, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Or down to verse 9. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. The righteous being others. See, this is not just about what's on David's plate. He's also praying more widely for the restraining of evil against God's people. That's perhaps a good reminder that you don't need to be going through something like this yourself in order to be praying for the restraining of evil. We do get a much more balanced view of life when we keep the worldwide persecuted church in our prayers. It can be quite cosy and comfortable here in the West sometimes. There's thankfully groups like the Barnabas Fund that give us regular news from around the world of Christians whose daily prayers are actually a lot like Psalm 7. Christians who are actually praying Each day, things like this. Lord, I take refuge in you. Deliver me or they'll tear me apart like a lion. You know, those Christians have genuine hope in the fact that God is a righteous judge. Hanging on to that as they're praying. This is a a violent world and it's good and proper to be praying for God's intervention. All those countless things that go on behind closed doors. Awful things where perpetrators seem to be laughing and getting away with it. So when we find God's judgment difficult to swallow, I think it's it's often quite helpful to ask, well, what is the alternative? Would we really want to say that Nothing matters and God should just let everyone off. 
The alternative to God's judgment is absolutely appalling. Burmese army making Korean Christians walk across minefields and taking bets with each other on which one will get blown up first. We to say that doesn't matter. I know you also run the Christianity Explored course here. We, we had a group at Logie's not too long ago. I was reminded in the DVD there, one of the weeks, uh, they take a, an extract from the book Schindler's List where there is a scene in a Jewish ghetto where the Nazi guards there are executing, I think, a mother and her son in front of a three-year-old girl. And so there, on the reflection, the reason that those Nazi guards weren't bothered about all the witnesses that were watching this happen was that they just believed that in time the witnesses would all be dead. Didn't really matter. You could do whatever they liked because they'd never have to give account. And even if they did, well, all those that could condemn them, they'd be dead by that time anyway. Doesn't really matter. But nothing goes unnoticed by God. Absolutely nothing goes unnoticed by God. And all will be brought to account. It's easy to misunderstand words like wrath, God's anger. But this is no wild, uncontrolled temper. It's right to be angry about sin, it's right and proper. We know that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But God's slowness to anger and his abounding in steadfast love, that is in no way in conflict with his justice. You sometimes hear this truly bizarre idea that the God we see in the Old Testament was the God of judgment, but by the time Jesus came along, well, he perhaps got it out of his system or grown up. Or then gentle Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, but then when you actually start to read the New Testament, you don't need to get too far before you see that Jesus, in fact, spoke of wrath and judgment more than anyone else. He cares about what is wrong. And rightly so. That is what God is like. He is the righteous judge. So what does that mean? We don't ever want to leave these things in abstract. Well, if you take what we have seen in Psalm 7 so far, and if you like, put two and two together. If God knows and sees everything, and if he is a righteous judge who insists upon justice, well then the unavoidable conclusion 
is that judgment is inevitable. And that's what we see worked out in the final section of this psalm. God's judgment is inevitable. If you come up before a judge who knows absolutely everything, and that judge insists upon justice, well then the unavoidable result is going to be judgment. As I said, in this prayer, David is looking ahead to the certainty of the final judgment. And so his appeal is to see some of that justice rolled out in the immediate future. And so whether that comes straight away, as he prays for, or further down the line at the end, well, he walks through the inevitability of judgment. We pick up at verse 14, if you look down. Verse 14, Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I guess you could call this the boomerang principle. This is evil coming home to roost. Comes back to bite itself. One example actually that came to my mind was from the book of Esther, if you're familiar with it. You may remember how Haman plots a genocide to wipe out God's people. And there he even builds for himself a set of gallows, I think, 75 feet high, these enormous big gallows on which he sets up to execute God's servant Mordecai. And what happens? Well, he ends up being hung on his own gallows that he had been building for his own evil schemes. God's judgment can sometimes work like that. Man digs a hole for someone else and falls into it himself. But we must remember this kind of language at the end of the psalm is not some sort of natural justice working its way out. This isn't karma. It's not whatever goes around comes around. This is God's active judgment being worked out. David's praying to see some of that justice in his current situation. Again, it's that prayer, isn't it? Lord, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Now, I want to just share with you an illustration um, from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on this psalm. Though I feel I should warn any that are a bit squeamish uh, that this is fairly grisly. Um, but it does make an important point. He is here describing the way in which the Eskimo hunts a wolf. Let me read this to you. 
First, he says, The Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. He adds several more layers of frozen blood until the blade is totally concealed. Next, he puts his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his nose and finds the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, with much more gusto, lapping at the blade until the sharp edge is bare. But now he is feverishly licking, harder and harder, his craving so intense that the wolf does not notice the sting of the bare blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the moment when his unquenchable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. He craves more and more until he is found in the snow the next morning. God's judgment can work like that. The enemies of God's people give way to their passion to persecute, their lust to eliminate his servants. But then they begin to litter the field of history, felled by the Almighty's arrows, cut down by his sword. We'll think too of what we read when Pontius Pilate has Jesus brought out before the crowd. And the crowd are all worked up like a pack of animals. They want their blood. And they're shouting at it, crucify him, crucify him. But to set yourself against the Lord is futile. It is absolutely futile. Evil may be allowed to have its head, but its end is as sure as God's judgment upon it. And that's what we're seeing in this psalm. God's judgment is inevitable. Not the easiest psalm to read, is it? It's not one of those warm and comfy psalms to cuddle up with on the sofa. But we need to hear these psalms as much as the ones which give us those warm spiritual feelings inside. I'm well aware here that this is not necessarily the cuddly, sanitized God that we sometimes hear described. You know, if we try to take the sharp edges off, then not only do we end up with a God of our imaginations, but we actually take away the very truth and hope upon which we stand. It is a good thing that God is a righteous judge. It is a good thing that God is a righteous judge. and In fact, the alternative is just appalling. It's a good thing that he doesn't ignore evil. So there's real, genuine hope for those broken and oppressed. The knowledge that even if nobody else in this world knows what is going on, God does know and he holds evil to account. There is real and genuine hope there. But you know, the thing about the gospel is that there's also hope for the persecutors and the perpetrators. 
Verse 12 says, if he does not relent. Or actually, as the, uh, the footnote at the bottom of the page there has it a bit more literally, if anyone does not repent, God will sharpen his sword, he will bend his string and bow, he has prepared his deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. As God is described as the warrior, his bow pulled back and ready to strike in judgment. But did you notice that statement? If anyone does not repent. What is it? It's a conditional statement, isn't it? It's conditional. The judgment is for those who will not repent. Judgment is for those who refuse to turn to God in repentance. So what is the implication of that? Well, surely that for those who will repent, well, then there is a hope of forgiveness. Judgment is inevitable. That is, that is not in question. Um, judgment is inevitable, but the question is, where will the judgment fall? Where will the judgment fall? Psalm 7 is a, is a hard psalm to read, but it gives us that sober, sober warning that God sees absolutely everything. He is just, and his judgment upon evil will surely and certainly fall upon the unrepentant. That is the truth of what God says to us here. But there is an alternative. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. See, the inevitable judgment falls, but it falls upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the best thing you've ever heard? If it's not, then you, I'd say you've probably not understood the gospel. But as it comes to us here, the promise is that for the one who refuses to turn to God in repentance, who refuses to take that offer of salvation in Jesus, well then the unavoidable consequence is to face God's just judgment alone. You read through the Gospels, Jesus warns us, Time and time again, again and again, he warns us about hell. But he does so because he loves us and doesn't want us to go there. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Let me finish with these words from Psalm 2. Adore the Son 
His sudden wrath can soon destroy you in your path. Yet safe are all beneath his wing who hide in Christ our Lord and King. Let's pray together, shall we? Our great God, we thank you that you are on the throne of the universe, that the one we pray to now sees absolutely everything. And not only do you see from afar, but you care and you love us and you have shown that in sending your son to die. Thank you that there is an alternative. Thank you that you offer us this gift of free salvation in Jesus. Forgive us for how we turn aside and ignore the truth that you give us, but we thank you that you give us psalms like Psalm 7 that remind us of the plain truth. We pray you would help us to hear your word, help us to receive it from you, and help us to so respond by worshipping you and trusting us, trusting in the Saviour that you have given. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the love that you show us in Jesus Christ. And we pray to you now in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.